You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our podcast, please help out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right. Thanks, everybody, for downloading and listening once again. Uh, we have a great show for you this week, and it is a show that is going to be a great setup, I think, at least for this upcoming season and really kind of uh, sets the tone for what you're about to see, or at least the best way I think we can. And it's an interview with somebody. We'll get more to that in just a second. But before we do that, I just want to... Um, Mention again the Patreon, uh, which I just mentioned there before. It is brand new, and I want to thank everyone who has signed up and has decided that uh, this podcast is worth maybe five bucks a month. I can't thank you enough. Uh, Garrett, our first ever patron, thank you so much. You jumped on that so fast. Mark, Ashley, Brian, Neil, Johnny, Brian E., Icer, uh, JC1166, Ryan, Matthew, Steve, Paul, Brian D, Bob, Thomas, Dan, Marilee, all of you for becoming patrons in the show. I can't tell you how much it means to me and my family that uh, that you've done that. This is a, just an honor for me to have <laughs> anyone be interested in helping out in this way. Um, while we're on the subject of Patreon, Marilee, the last one who I mentioned there, she wrote me this email. Glad to see you have adopted the Patreon model to keep the podcast going. I'd rather hear the ocean between segments than advertisers. I signed up. How is this going to resolve the issue of, quote unquote, not enough time, though? Love the Gordon Fader interview. Thank you for your time and enthusiasm, Marilee. And I felt, Marilee, I should at least answer that. Um, in my mind and in the mind of my wife, let's be honest, time is money, right? Um, this if we put this all together, uh, how long it takes to do your average podcast, uh, you're talking about anywhere between the six and 10 hour range during the season where we're doing some research. I mean, some of the interview stuff kind of cuts that down a little bit. Um, I have to do some research for the interviews for sure. So that's an hour or two. If I have to read a book in order to do an interview, that's even more than that. Um, you know, but it's the average show though during the se during the series takes about six to ten hours to do. Um, that's six to ten hours where I can't do things that make money or things that help my family, right? So as it's a cliche and it's kind of a cynical sounding one, but really in the long run, time is money. If I'm actually bringing home money for this, things you know, money that helps the family, then the six to ten hours is much more easily justified than volunteering the hours <laughs> when I'm trying to justify this to my wife who's got her uh, you know, arms crossed looking at me like, how many volunteer hours are you doing? Listen, this is a labor of love, and I absolutely love doing this podcast. But it's hard to be a dad and a husband and have another job and all these things that I do and donate the time it takes to do this podcast. I think I said it last time. There are other podcasts that I do. Um, sit downs and sessions is one of them. And that's a very simple podcast. It takes about an hour. <laughs> I get on the phone with my friend. We 
record the show, we talk about it. The editing process is really nothing more than sticking a, uh, you know, listening to it for sure, but sticking a theme on the back and the front of it, and then maybe listening to it. The whole thing maybe takes two hours, and uh, while I'm listening to the feed of what I did, there's no editing involved, there's no stopping, there's no saving, there's no cutting and pasting, there's nothing like that. So it just becomes a lot easier, and it maybe takes a couple hours to do, and for most of that, for 50% of that, I could do other work while I'm actually listening to it and just kind of reviewing it. This show is not that, you know. Um, it takes watching the show, just just watching an episode of the show. I watch it twice before I broadcast, just so I feel like I know exactly what I'm doing. And I think the second time around, you kind of see some more things in there. Um, so that's two hours just there, just doing that before I write the script or write my notes for it, research anything that might be involved in it. Uh, a lot of times if I have questions for things, I reach out. You guys send questions in. A lot of times those questions are difficult for me to answer and I can't answer them off the top of my head, so I have to reach out to somebody for that. Then is the process of recording, which takes about twice as long as what you're hearing because I'm going back and redoing things that I don't like the way I said it or maybe I thought didn't communicate properly. So that's a couple hours worth. Then it's the editing, this putting in of the cutting and pasting the bad stuff, putting in the theme, putting in the, the sound effects, doing all that kind of stuff. You know, it, this podcast is time, time uh, heavy. So it's getting harder and harder to look at my wife and say, yeah, I need to spend another four hours tonight not helping you put the kid to bed, but instead doing my Oak Island podcast. It's less so when I can hand her a check at the end of the month. <laughs> Listen, I'm just keeping it real. It's all I can do, right? Um, so as far as patrons go, um, I don't want this to be very exclusive. That's why I only did one tier. Um, I don't want this to be that, you know, there's so much more content you'd get by being a patron because I really don't have the time to produce a whole lot more content. Uh, but one of the things I think I'm going to do is as best I can while watching the show as it's airing, I'm going to try to get on their little message board there and try to do some live comments and maybe some live conversations with the patrons during the show. So if that's interesting to you, um, please. And if you're a patron already, uh, come and join us on that. This is kind of a developing thing, right? So if you have any thoughts, especially the patrons who already signed up or people who are on the fence, if you have any thoughts on it and maybe something else we can do as part of it, um, especially if you're a patron of another project, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to hear your ideas. So send them on in. You know, if you're not a page, if you're a patron, you can do it straight on there. If you're not, send me an email at uh, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Speaking of emails, next week we are going to do an all email show. I have a bunch of them I got to catch up on now. We're going to do an all email show to kind of get us ready for the season opener, which will be the first week of November. So if you have any questions, any comments, anything you want to get in preseason, any ideas, things you're expecting to see, things you think you might see, feel free to write them there, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. And then that's what we'll do next week. Okay, so let's set up this interview we have. Remember last season, the big cliffhanger was silver. Silver found, a chemical signature of silver found in water, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, taken out of some areas of the money pit, right? A couple different shafts of the money pit. The person who did that 
was a man by the name of Dr. Matt Lukeman. He is a professor and a department head at the university in chemistry at the Acadia University in Nova Scotia. He's the man who did the tests, brought the results back along with the swamp doctor, Ian Spooner, and presented us with this incredible cliffhanger of what they called a uh, Gerhardt truckload potential of silver in the money pit. I'm sorry if you hear my dogs barking in the background. It's pandemonium in the house today. Anyway, Dr. Lukeman joins us now. And we're going to talk about all the things that, uh, I mean, he is obviously going to be um, constrained a little bit on what he's already done this year with a non-disclosure agreement. We discuss all that. But I think it's a really great interview and a chance for us to get kind of excited about this line of searching on Oak Island for whatever the source of this silver is. So we're going to take a short break here. When we come back, I'll have Dr. Matt Lukeman of Acadia University to talk about a Gerhardt truckload of silver in the money pit. Okay, folks, joining me now is, and you're going to know him, the professor of chemistry at Acadia University, Dr. Matt Lukeman. Remember him? He's the silver guy. I'm sure you're going you're gonna to remember him as you hear him talking here. Uh, first of all, thank you for joining me. Um, it's a great pleasure to have you on here, and we have tons of questions for you. <laughs> Wonderful. Great. I'm here. Now, before we get into sort of the work that you've done, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself um, and how you came to be involved in Oak Island, like how, how this all happened. I think we kind of know. I mean, you're a colleague of other people, and it seems like Acadia University is the go-to university for Oak Island now, um, as there's so many people involved there. But it, just explain that part of it a little bit for us. Sure. I mean, if you want to go way back, I mean, I grew up in Nova Scotia. Yeah, we want to go way back. <laughs> yeah. So growing up in Nova Scotia, always aware of the legend of Oak Island. Of course, when I was a kid, the show wasn't on or anything like that. But you'd hear books and articles and stories and so on. And it was just sort of like local legend, I guess you would say. Right. Uh, although I, I guess growing up, I, I guess I had no idea that there was an active search going on. It, to me, it was always sort of a historical thing. Um, and then, you know, I, I went to school, became a chemist, uh, lived out west for a while in British Columbia. Eventually moved back as a professor at Acadia of Chemistry in 2005. So I've been there, what's that now, 16 years and been department head for the last six or so. So, you know, good career there. Everything's been great. Um, as department head, I've worked with a lot of other people in a lot of other departments there, including Ian Spooner. So Ian Spooner was department head of Earth and Environmental Science there, and we overlapped for a few years. And, of course, I, I know, I've known Ian for a long time, so going right. kind of way back. Yeah. Um, I was aware when the show came on, and I think I watched uh, – off and on, you know, a couple of a couple of shows from the first few seasons, and um, uh, one of the main reasons I know about it is because my nephews were addicted to the show, so they loved it. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, went on the tours, went down, and, and the whole thing. So, are they in Nova Scotia? They're in Nova Scotia as well. Okay. Yeah, 
yeah. So, you know, it's always been fun that way and, and, and interesting. And, um, so I guess it was just last summer when, um, Ian Spooner, you know, obviously he plays a large role in the show and he's got his fingers in a thousand different pies there. Um, the, I, you know, we, we were chatting and the idea came up about looking at the chemistry of the water on Oak Island. And is there something that we could look for in the water that might tell us a little bit about what's going on underground? And so it started out, he, he brought me a few samples and, you know, things look pretty interesting from there. And we decided to undertake what we would call a pathfinder study. So really what a pathfinder study is, it's, it's sort of a almost random series of tests of different water sites around the island um, to see even can we see anything? Is there anything of interest? Is this even something worth pursuing maybe more systematically, if you know what I mean? Uh, so we, you know, I, I got to go down there and, and, you know, see the whole production and meet all the, you know, notable notables, <laughs> right, right, right. Notable characters down there. And, um, I, I guess one of the first things I was really struck with was how tight of a team everybody was, how everybody sort of knew their roles and everybody, you know, worked hard and did their thing, but also how willing people were to just jump in when there was a need, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, so you know, certain people, you know, they have a, you know, the way it's portrayed on the show, at least, they have a very defined role, but everybody was helping everybody. And it was, it was, it was a great environment to be working in. So I'll be honest too, when a lot of what we were doing on the island initially was new to me because I'm a chemist. I uh, have a lot of lab experience, of course, and most of that experience is in the lab. You know, samples come in, we we do some work with them, we measure this, we measure that. Uh, and working out in the field and collecting samples myself was was very interesting. And it was stuff I had learned about theoretically, stuff I had seen lots of talks on and this sort of thing. Um, but being out there and actually doing it was was quite fun, quite interesting. And uh, it's always good professionally to learn new things and grow. The, 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 the questions that come out of my head as you're talking here, uh, is, and that is one of them, is, I mean, this is probably not something you've ever done before. And I'm always fascinated by how we the, the Oak Island takes applications that aren't really meant for what they're doing. For instance, uh, you know, drilling methods for finding gasoline turn into a treasure hunter thing. And then I would imagine that's the kind of the same with what you're doing. I can't imagine your 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 uh, academic background is in treasure hunting. <laughs> right. So yeah. talk about a little bit about how uh, how we scientists can apply what they do to these type of situations. Yeah. And that's a very interesting point. Um, and maybe one thing I'll add to that is nobody's done anything like this before because Oak Island is such a unique site. Right. It, you know, people have sunk wells all over the world, taken water samples all over the world, tested well water all over the world. But I don't think there's anywhere um, that has so many wells drilled in such a small area 
into ground that's been so manipulated over hundreds of years, right? So, so really, <laughs> it's kind of fun because, because as an academic, I'm used to being able to rely on a body of literature. You can read papers and, you know, the, the old standing on the shoulders of giants thing that we say in science. Right. Uh, where in this case, obviously, like there's some some background that we can build on. Uh, but a lot of it, we're, we're, we're doing it for the first time. And it's not easy to find good comparison data for what we're what we're measuring, if you know what I mean. So like anything, though, I mean, uh, we can apply basically the methods that we're looking for, we can get data and do our best to try to make sense of that data. And it's actually really nice to see the team at Oak Island focusing more, I would say, on, on empirical science, empirical evidence. And, you know, the hope is, is that this really leads to some breakthroughs there. So in terms of, you know, the application of science, certainly there's all kinds of techniques that as you say, weren't designed for a treasure hunt on a heavily manipulated island, but can be applied there just like they could be applied anywhere else. So it, it, it's it's interesting and it actually is it's helpful because there's a lot of, I guess, well-developed methods and equipment and supplies that we can just borrow directly for this application. Okay, so last year's testing process, can you maybe expand a little bit on that. I mean, basically all we saw was results. We didn't really see much. I don't remember about how the test is done or what you actually go through to come up with the results and things like that. Just a little background information. I don't want you to get too wonky. Obviously I'm not a chemist and you're going to go right over my head right away, but uh, you could go a little over my head. I don't mind that. <laughs> sure thing. Well, well, first of all, the Island is, is studded with wells and the wells are all over the Island and there are hundreds that have been dug over the decades. And so I guess the first problem was which wells are the ones of interest? Which ones do we want to study? And when I showed up on the island, it was, you know, all new land to me. I had no idea what the history of the different areas of the island were and this sort of thing. Uh, but luckily, we had uh, help. You know, we had Dan Hemsky, for example. He has a encyclopedic knowledge of everything that's happened on that island since he was a child or, or, or not a child, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A young man, <laughs> for sure. He was. He was in his 20s, I think, Yeah. when yeah. he first started working there. But he has, you know, a photographic memory of, of everything. And he could tell you the detailed history of any well that he was aware of on the island. Wow. So with his help, we identified about a dozen or so wells of interest uh, two of which were in the money pit area. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, if you watch the show, every episode they're showing new holes being drilled in the money pit area. Yes. And so there's all kinds of them that are, that are there. And uh, so really what we were looking for were sort of, obviously the money pit area is probably the primary area of interest or has been for, for many years. We wanted some samples from there, but we also wanted some samples from elsewhere around the island as comparison. So, for example, if we saw some really high values of something of interest in the money pit area, but we saw similarly high values all over the island, okay, 
then it's like, well, is it something that's in the money pit or is it just the natural background of this area? So we wanted to be really sure we had good comparison data. And so that really drove the selection of those 12 wells and gave us kind of a nice uh, set to begin to look at. So once the wells were picked out, it was a matter of visiting each well and collecting water samples from the well. And so the way you do that is there's a, a piece of equipment, it's called a baler, and it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's basically a stainless steel tube, and it has a ball valve at the top and a ball valve at the bottom. And as this is lowered through a column of water, uh, the ball valve opens at the bottom and the top, water flows in from the bottom and flows through the tube and then out again through the top. So as you lower it down through a column of water in a well or in a lake or whatever, um, it's the water that's inside the tube is from the exact outside area, same depth. And then what happens when you hit bottom or you get close to the bottom and you start to reel it back up, the ball sits in the ball valve, the ball seals the top and the bottom, and what you pull up then is a sample of water from whatever depth you decided to start pulling up at. So it allows you to kind of sample discrete depths and get water samples from really any point in the water column that you want. So you're taking samples from multiple depths in these wells, if it's like a well of 100 feet or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and mostly we were interested in samples near the bottom. And the reason right. is, is that, you yeah, know, if, if, if that water that's in the well is interacting with the area around it, it's going to enter the well from the bottom. Okay. So is this a test, are these kind of tests normally done for like environmental things like bacteria levels or things along that line? Or, or is this just a sample and you're doing a chem, chemical analysis it's not it's not a it's not a test that's done normally it's just something you guys are doing with this you know so sample yeah here. so so that's that's a, that's a good question and, and as you say when you pull water up people all the time if you're on a well would want to sample your well water to make sure it's it's safe uh usually what people test well water for as you say is bacteria and you know if you have bacteria in your well you can shock the well and, and you know right right but we weren't looking for bacteria we were looking for metals the idea being that if there's treasure down there treasure uh obviously metal probably if you assume that it's mostly gold um it probably also contains silver or may also contain silver it may also contain copper and zinc and a few other things that were off explain that what if if you're looking for gold why would you find copper okay so uh that's the thing so so i guess the first thing i can say is that gold is extremely difficult to detect in water in a test like this okay uh, and that's because i mean that would be the 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 ideal right if you could just measure gold directly and say okay there's gold down here you normally don't find golden water, bingo, bango, right? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> problem Start gold, digging. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the problem with gold is that it's what we call a noble metal. So it's like noble gases. It's extremely unreactive. And it's a good thing and a bad thing. It's good because if there was gold deposited down there 300 years ago or whatever, um, 
it'll still be there essentially intact. So it makes it hard for it to be traced in the water because it doesn't corrode and it has to corrode to end up in the water supply for us to see it. So, um, we did a little bit of digging in looking at what coinage was made out of back, you know, more than 200 years ago and what bulk gold like bullion might've, what other metals might've contained because they certainly weren't able to refine gold to the levels that we can today. Uh, so there was other elements that were often associated with it. There was other metals that they used to make coins besides gold, of course, and silver was a very common one. In fact, in Canada, um, dimes, Canadian dimes were made out of silver, 80% silver up until 1968, I think. So it was a very common coinage metal too, but a very uncommon element to find just naturally in soils. Right? Okay. So what you're saying is you're extrapolating, get, if somebody's mining for gold, when they pull the gold out, there's other metals actually inside that. And what we can do now is remove that metal, but you couldn't at certain, so you can kind of figure out when the gold was mined due to what's in it. Is that what you're, you're getting at? Like, uh, are, there, are there other metals present in the gold as they're pulling it out of the mine? And then the refining process is what takes that away. That's, that's true. Right. So yeah, if you found gold underground, um, it's generally not going to be pure and it's going to be okay. just even the refining process as well. Like, you, you know, you're not going to dig up a bar of gold, right? You're going to find a, a sliver, a vein and you'd pull it up. And so, you know, if you look at like the Canadian mint right now, for example, it's a, it's a huge organization that actually makes currency all over the world. And they have a process that they brag can make gold that's 99.999% pure. Uh, and that's pretty remarkable, but that's, those aren't methods that existed back then. Right. So, right. so yeah, the yeah, gold yeah. will have impurities in it. Uh, and I don't even, even mean to suggest that we're looking for things that's going to leach out of gold. It also could just be other items, right? Like could, if you could imagine there was jewelry or there was, you know, you name it, uh, anything, if it contained silver, which is a common metal to be used in coinage and in jewelry. Um, that was the hope to see the signature of that in the water. Okay. So just remind us again, you do the test. What do the results tell you? <laughs> right. <laughs> so we pulled it up. We, we used a method. Uh, so when we took the measurements, actually, we, uh, sent them out to a certified lab. So we didn't actually do them in house and okay. the certified lab is good because it's, it's accredited. It's, it's, you know, the, the, their methods and tests and everything have been accredited by expert organizations. So right, it's right, like, of course. Yeah. You know, we, we can trust the numbers and the method used is called ICPMS, which is inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. So mouthful there. But essentially what happens is the water is sucked into the machine, heated to an extremely high temperature, a high temperature that's high enough to break all bonds. You just have atoms at the, at the end. And then there's a mass spectrometer that tells you um, what atoms were in there and how many. So in one test, you can see basically 
about 25 different metals. And there's other methods available where you can see even more than that if you want. So we were able to kind of get for each of these samples um, uh, kind of a profile of concentrations of a whole bunch of different metals that were in each of these water samples. So that was kind of where we started. And I believe on the show they showed kind of a, a table of data. Yes. For all of these wells. Which and we were all pausing, trying to make sense out of, by the way. I just, just so you understand, maybe not all of us, but certainly I was. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I uh, didn't have it on pause. I had the actual data in my hands and I also spent a lot of time looking at it, trying to make sense of it. So, <laughs> so can you make some sense of it for us? So, yeah. And, and as I, you know, would say that it was Pathfinder, meaning, Right, which initial. they mention in the show and don't really explain what that is. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really what we mean by that is that it's it's an initial test, uh, not, I would say, maybe comprehensive or systematic. It was sort of we picked some spots here, there, and just to see what we would see. Um, and if we saw something interesting, maybe look to do something more complete. Um, and so what we did see were... And it's funny, you know, I've been a chemist for many years, but I kind of, I'm always ready to be surprised. <laughs> so I, I was not expecting to see any silver in anything. I, I just thought, you, you're not going to find silver. Um, even if there was a lot of silver down there, I was skeptical if you would actually see much of it in the water. Uh, just because silver, it it's not as unreactive as gold but it's pretty damn unreactive. Okay. Okay. So yeah, if you had a piece of silver and you, a silver bracelet or something and you threw it in a river and had water constantly running over it, I don't know. It would, to, to me, it would, it would be years and years and years, I think before anything would, before you, before it would corrode. Um, whereas a piece of iron or something like that will corrode in no time. Well, that right? was going to be my next question. I mean, uh, what you're so just so I'm clear on this, silver is similar to gold in that you stick it in water, you could test the water and come up with no traces of it normally. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you wouldn't even and, know it was there just by a by a regular water test. If I just dropped a piece of gold into a bottle of water, if I tested that water, I wouldn't know the gold was in there. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, so. Silver is also finicky. There's, it has very complex chemistry. Its chemistry is actually much more complex than gold and more complex than other things. So one thing about silver is um, what we're looking for is silver ions. So if it's in the water, it's going to be an ionized form of silver. And actually that is extremely reactive and will react with things like chloride in water and you know other things that could be dissolved in water. And it makes basically an insoluble powder. So silver <laughs> concentrations in water never really get too high because something it'll react with something and then go back out of solution. And chloride, of course, is found in seawater, sodium chloride. And so you, if, there's, if it's salty water, you'd expect to find very, very low levels of silver in there. Because okay. it'll react. Yeah. So, so that's the thing is, and sometimes it makes it a challenge to sometimes measure silver in water because you can, let's say you measure the same well three days in a row, you might get three pretty different numbers 
um, just because for 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 this complicating these complicating reasons, it can be it, you have to be very careful. I guess is maybe a way of saying it. So we tried to be as careful as we could. We took our our samples of silver, and we were able to see it in a few of the wells. And I think that what they showed actually on the show is that it was trace. Is the is sort of the they didn't put a number there. They just put we just put trace. Right. And yeah. So the reason for that is the there's a detection limit for the uh, method that we used, the ICPMS method. And what that means is if there's silver in the water below that concentration, it'll read to us just as zero. And that value, I believe, for silver was 0.1 micrograms per liter or 0.1 parts per billion, which probably means nothing to you. Just that it's, <laughs> a, it's a very, very small detection limit. And... It's one of these things. If, so if the limit is 0.1 micrograms per liter and we got a reading back that said 0.1 or 0.2, to me, that would be, well, it's very close to the limit. We can see it. But whether that number if it's 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, um, because it's so close to the limit, maybe it's not as... Uh, Easy to trust the value, if you know what I mean. Like sure, we know sure. it's there, but sure. exactly how much it's it's on the edge. Makes you know all I mean? se- it makes sense. Yep. And so I think what we were doing is, if anything was, it, it would have had to been ten times higher than the limit of detection for us to call it not trace. Okay. If that makes sense, it does. So, so we saw most of the wells were below detect. Most of the wells just gave us zeros. And you can see that on the data that right. was posted on the show. Right. The ones that say trace were above the limit of detection, but not like screaming high like they were for the other very common environmental metals like iron, for example. Sure. And so we were surprised by that and uh, more surprised that the two highest ones were in the money pit area. Were wells from the money pit. Now tell us how high we're talking about here. Okay, so because there was a point in time where somebody said something to the effect of this means there's a lot of silver down there. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the quote was uh, a Gerhard dump truck load. Yes, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um so, so that's a good question. Is like, how much is down there? How much would there need to be down there for you to see a signal like that? Um, and it, that turns out to be an extremely complicated question. And <laughs> the reason is, is for silver to be detected in the water, what needs to happen is you need metallic silver, like a coin or something, and it needs to corrode. And then you have silver ions enter the water and stay in the water long enough so it doesn't react with things like chloride and other things that I mentioned. Um, so <laughs> what that means then <laughs> is you can either have a lot of it corroding extremely slowly, a smaller amount ex- corroding extremely quickly. And so the answer that was given on the show, a dump truck load, you know what that really comes from it's 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 a bit of a guess but it's like if there's one coin down there it's it would completely shock me 
if one coin could produce a signal that we could see in multiple different spots. Given the volumes of water that's down there, uh, there's other factors as well which control how well it corrodes underwater. One of them being how much oxygen there is down there because it needs oxygen to oxidize and corrode. Uh, and we know there's like no oxygen 100 feet down or very, very little. Um, pH is another one. So, you know, how acidic is the water? And there's a okay. lot of other factors down there. So, so really, uh, you know, that was a guess. We don't know what the size of the source is. We don't even know what exactly the source is. Uh, all we can really say is that a tiny amount down there is unlikely to produce signals that we could see. So, I mean, what, what we always assume from watching the show is that you guys probably said all that and then it got turned into just the Gerhardt truck full of silver. <laughs> you know, I mean, we all we all know that and we all know that's the case. So when you got the test result back, is your reaction this is insane. Like, why would it look like this? Because they, it, it came off that way. Like you and all the other doctors were like, this is the most amazing test result we've ever seen in our lives. Like, is that really what you guys were thinking? Or were you thinking like, this is just the first step and we have to, you know, there's a lot more to tell us, not a lot more to be learned here. Well, well, yeah, I'd say a bit of a combination. Um, clearly, it was early. You know, as I said, we with, you can't say with certainty what the source of it was or the amount of the source. Uh, but, you know, it was it was provocative, maybe is the word I would say. OK. And, and certainly I would say uh, enough to spur on some more work. And. The show, obviously, yeah. I mean, every sentence that we say doesn't make screen, you know. Exactly. So, so, and it is a TV show, right? So they. Uh, that's why I do what I do. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, so yeah. Um, so I'd say, yeah, there was definitely some surprise, definitely some interest, definitely some like, okay, wow, this is cool. Like, where are we going to go with this? Um. It, and I think Marty may have said on the show, too, that this is sort of the perhaps the first direct evidence that there are precious metals down there. Because one thing I can say with certainty right now, and I could have said it then and I'll say it any time, is there is a source of silver down there. You can't see silver in the water without there being a source for the silver. And the question is size uh, of the source. Is it a distributed source? Is it in all from one place? Um, is it from natural sources or is it not from natural sources? Because that's a possibility as well. Well, can you can you talk about that a little bit more? I mean, what what is the possibility of it being a natural occurrence? So that's the thing. You can if you went all over the world and you dug wells all over the world and took samples all over the world and did the same thing that we did, you would find in some places comparable silver concentrations that we saw. Okay. Um, so if not, it, and are we talking about places where there were known silver deposits that were mined or are we talking about just a natural place? Like you can find it under my deck. 
So yeah, clearly there'd have to be a natural deposit there, uh, and there'd need to be it need to be exposed, need to be water interacting with it, and so on. Um, I think with the Oak Island, what was interesting is you know that data that we showed, you could see where the silver was, and the, all the other ones were blanks. Basically, all the other nine spots around the island were zero. And so that was the interesting part, right? It's if you're seeing it in the money pit, but you're not seeing it elsewhere on the island, it makes you start to scratch your head and say, well, if it was a natural source, the island is very small. Why wouldn't you just see the same concentrations everywhere on the island? And that's not what we saw. Or at least similar concentrations. I mean, or, you yeah, may, least, yeah, you may have differences yeah. here and there, but they'd be small, I would imagine. Exactly. Right. So that was important that we did the other wells that showed nothing because that really helped us. You know, again, it's not proof positive that the source isn't natural of the wells that did show it, but it's, you know, pretty suggestive. Now, now you have to be cagey here because I'm sure you have more information than you're giving us that you're not allowed to do because I, I assume the work is continuing. Um, that's right. So I am under an NDA. <laughs> I'm being very cagey and careful with what I, uh, yeah. I'm saying, of course. Yeah. But you are continuing. This process is moving forward um, in some way, shape or form. Yeah. So they're not done with the water. That's for sure. Okay. Um is there anything else about, and this is this, the, the answer to this question could easily be no. Is there anything else about this test and this information that you think I and listeners of a show, curious people about this type of thing, would need to know sort of going into next season? Does that make sense? I mean, without giving anything away, do we have all the information we need to know to sort of follow this train along a little bit more and see where we go from here? I mean, it, yeah, you've I mean, sort of clarified a, the fact that natural occurrences are certain, certainly a possibility, but would be incredibly unusual, especially considering where we're looking at here. I mean, to find a natural deposit just happens to be in the money pit area seems a little bit of an seems a little bit of a, a hail mary pass. But certainly, there are you know, and that there is more testing to do. I mean, is there anything that we're that we should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, the only thing that really comes to mind with that is just to keep in mind how incredibly manipulated the money pit area has been. And, right. you know, there's been, of course, the initial searcher activity sank dozens of shafts. And these shafts, you know, were six feet, eight feet, 10 feet across, all the way down to 90, 100 feet deep. And there's dozens of them, right? Like, and there's tunnels connecting them underneath. There's a very complex underground, I guess, architecture maybe is the way to say it, where you'd have tunnels that collapsed. Uh, you have, and these are tunnels that they know about that, you know, reported them in previous seasons. Uh, they have records from the searchers over the years. And so it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Like even it's hard for me to even imagine what I even mean now by a natural source. Right. Because there's nothing really natural about that site at this point. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's lots of digging and so on. So if you saw a spike in iron concentration in a certain spot, it's like, well, they used iron shovels and they left their 
old shovels down there. It's like, well, that was going to be my next question. Could it be something related to searching? And, and that's a good question, right? And uh, I mean, they didn't make their shovels out of silver. <laughs> exactly, but could but, but were there tra- were there traces of silver? And I mean, could somebody have dropped a coin in their pocket and you know out of their pocket and that kind of stuff, or a necklace? I, I don't know. You know, I mean, yeah. It's yeah, starting to seem less and less possible that it is searcher related, and it's cert- and and how far apart were the two wells that gave you these information that gave you this information? Like ten feet. Okay, so it's not somebody didn't drop a coin in in one thing, and then it would show up in the water ten feet over. That would seem a little peculiar too. <laughs> and even like I don't know, a coin is not enough, right? I wouldn't think, and. and- and almost even what's more important than the total mass of silver down there is the surface area because it's a surface phenomenon for this for to corrode. So if you had a you know a pound of silver powder, that would give a much bigger signal than a pound silver block because the powder it's all surface area corrode much more quickly. It's 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 a very complex area and. Um, I, and I, I, I see you. You've got questions, and we've got all the same questions. And <laughs> a lot of what we're trying to do here is is find answers to some of these questions, at least as best we can. Uh, I got a couple more before I let you go, and you've been incredibly yeah. generous with your time here. But uh, growing up in 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 uh, Nova Scotia, uh, I ask everybody who I talk to from Nova Scotia this: um, What did Oak Island mean? What 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 was it? Was it was it like a crazy thing, like uh, Area 51, or was it, and uh, my apologies to any Area 51 believers, was it something like that, or was it, uh, you know, I mean, ha- ha- what was your thoughts about it? I mean, was it a big deal, or really not, or kind of just a, something from the past? I don't think people saw it as a, a, a crazy way out there concept. Okay. Uh, I mean, I remember reading a book when I was, I don't know how old it was, 12 or something like that. And it was, I don't know what, who the author was, but it was a kind of a detailed account of all of the searcher activity up until the 1970s. And, you know, it had the whole thing with the, uh, you know, the 10 foot platforms and the original money pit and the 90 foot stone and all these sorts of things. And these were all people devoting their lives to the search and again, I mean, you, I took it at face value. I didn't assume that they were making it up or that it was a lie. And I figured, why would they devote their lives to it if they didn't believe it was real themselves? So I think it was one of those things where it's like, I grew up kind of thinking like, definitely there was a lot going on there, a lot of very provocative information coming out from the search whether it's ever findable or whether it was already found and removed like those are questions that of course always plague everything um but but no it was it was very much real and and the other thing too in nova scotia being you know so much coastline close to new england um and one of the oldest settled parts of North America, uh, by Europeans. And it was a spot where people would bury gold and gold has been found in spots in Nova Scotia. 
So it's certainly not out of the realm, or it wasn't for me growing up, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that it could all be real. And so, but, and fast forward a little bit. Now you're in academia. Yeah. And you're taking part in the search. You're, you're now, you're now part of it. Your, your, your name is now associated with Oak Island. I wonder if that has, how, how that feels to you. <laughs> that you're, that you're now, you're now like tied to this, to this thing. Cause for some people, I would imagine up there, it would be a difficult thing for an academic to do, to take part in something like this. You know, it's something that I would imagine many people think is a fool's errand or uh, a legend or whatever people might think. Yeah, and I can I can certainly, you know, I've, I've heard that sentiment before. Personally, I, I don't I don't worry about it. I mean. I, I, what's the best way to say this, I guess, is uh, to me, I think there is, I think beyond doubt, evidence of a lot of activity on that island pre-recorded history. Uh, you know, I think the Stone Road last year was never, as far as I know, written down anywhere, showed that there was some scale of activity going on there. Um, so to me, it's, it's a problem. It's a it's a mystery. And to me, that's what science is meant to apply to. Um, is there a possibility that nothing comes out of it? Well, of course. And is that okay? Yes. Um, do I think what I'm doing is pseudoscience? And the answer to that is definitely no, right? <laughs> right. We are applying real scientific methods and we're doing it properly and we're doing all the checks and follow-ups and all of that sort of thing. And we're doing it as a team. So it's not a, an, even an individual thing. And we're kind of doing the best we can. Um, you know, we're, we're finding out information and we're giving that to the main team of searchers, you know, Craig and the Laginas. Right. And, and what they decide to do with that is of course up to them. But, you know, I think what we're doing is very real. And I think it's a kind of a fascinating kind of side thing, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because, you know, I have my main job, which is teaching and I have a research program and, and all the rest. Uh, but this is like a very interesting application of, of my expertise and a, and really a privilege, I would say, to be able to work on a site like that. And were you a skeptic going in? Or did you really not give it that much thought? Yeah, I guess I feel like as a scientist, it's my not my role to be a believer or a non-believer. It's to be objective. And, you know, of course, I'm a person too, right? So you can't, right. you can't, you can't it's nice to say you're 100% objective, but nobody is. Um, so I guess maybe going in, what I'd say is I was not a true believer in the sense like I wasn't convinced there was money down there and we're going to find it. But on the other hand, I was very open to the possibility that it was real. And it's, it's sort of one of those things like there wasn't really convincing information to know that it's, that, that there's something down there or to, to reject completely the idea that there's something down there. It's, it's, there's, it's, 
you know, they found a lot of stuff. It's, it's provocative, it's exciting. And Hey, if we can find some information out that really supports things or doesn't support things, you know, that's valuable. And I think that's, that's worthwhile. So uh, if I ask you if there's a treasure on Oak Island, you're not going to give me an answer, I would imagine. <laughs> Is there a treasure on Oak Island? Well, that's it, right? Like, that's the age-old question. <laughs> but if a doctor tells me there is, then I'm excited. Then you have to. Be, right? <laughs> Listen, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. No problem. It's a lot of fun. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. First of all, my sincerest thanks to Dr. Matt Lukeman for coming on. We tried for a couple of months to get this together, and it was a little difficult to get our schedules to match up here. But I think in the long run, having done this when I did and posting it now really does work because you've got this stuff in your head now. You've got more information than you got from that 10-minute bit of the last episode of last season to kind of think about what we're seeing now as we move forward. Uh, I would imagine the beginning of this season may have a lot of this sort of information in it, so we'll see. We'll see where we go. Anyway, (laughs) shameless plug time. I produce another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions. Me and my friend and radio host uh, Chris Post sit down over a drink or two. We talk about pubs, music, politics, the paranormal Basically anything uh, two old friends would talk about while having a drink at a bar. Give it a listen. You can find sit-downs and sessions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual podcast places. Also, I'm back in the air as a DJ every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4 p.m. And then again from 4 to 5 p.m. Uh, we have I've been hosting a show. From 2 to 4, it's uh, on WDVR-FM. It's called the Bourbon Street Bistro. I play the music of New Orleans. And then from 4 to 5 p.m., it's called Island Vibes. We do sort of all music with a little bit of a tropical feel. You can listen by going to WDVRFM.org or just by telling Alexa to turn on WDVR. And don't forget, you can really help the show out by going by becoming a patron. Um, if you think the show is worth five bucks a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash digging oak island and learn more. And also, if you're enjoying Digging Oak Island, uh, I ask you to please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And a big thanks to everyone who's done that already. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for taking that time. And uh, especially thank you for the kind words. Don't forget, you can follow the show at Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. And again, if you have any questions and comments, especially this week as we do our last sort of listener question show leading up to the start of the next season, uh, send them directly to me via email, digginoakisland at gmail.com. Uh, just keep in mind, if you send me an email or a direct message on social media, um, I may just answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want it read aloud to the listening audience, just make a note of that for me and I'll do my best to answer you. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.